Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Verrocchio, sculptor and painter of Renaissance Florence, is the first ever monographic exhibition in the United States on Andrea del Verrocchio, circa 1435 to 1488. The National Gallery of Art is the sole American venue of the exhibition that runs from September 15, 2019 through January 12, 2020. Verrocchio was both a draftsman and a modeler whose designs were carried out in painting and sculpture by his own hand, but also by pupils and assistants, including Leonardo da Vinci, Pietro Perugino, and likely Sandro Botticelli. In this lecture, held on December 15, 2019, Sir Nicholas Penny argues that Verrocchio was one of the most influential of all European artists because he developed practices that came to be of fundamental importance in subsequent centuries, notably the separate study of drapery, the nude, and expressive heads and hands. It's a real, it is a real pleasure for me to return to the National Gallery of Art. Uh, a real pleasure for me to see this exhibition and to lecture on Verrocchio. Uh, the exhibition is sponsored by the William and Buffy K. Fritz Family Foundation, and, and Buffy has also made possible this associated event. So you must thank her for the exhibition, and uh, you must thank her if you enjoy this lecture. <laughs> and you must thank Sandy and Helen Wilkes, have also made this possible. I need to mention a few other names. Eleonora Luciano, formerly a colleague of mine in the sculpture department here, conceived of this exhibition, but died nearly three years ago. Andrew Butterfield, the leading scholar in this field, who is the exhibition's curator. Uh, not everything by Verrocchio is here perhaps just as well. Uh, the great equestrian monument is perhaps the greatest equestrian monument ever created, remains in Venice, although it would not surprise me to hear that uh, Dodge Thompson had tried to have it sent over. The Fortiguary tomb remains, of course, in Pistoia Cathedral, but photographs of the marble sculpture of which that tomb is composed may be seen in a beautiful supplementary exhibition in the library. Not, I think, normally open on a Sunday, so you must come back, which will save them from a tidal wave of visitors this afternoon. The exhibition is entitled Verrocchio Connoisseurship and the photographs of Clarence Kennedy the brochure includes an excellent essay on the work of Clarence Kennedy, photographer and art historian, active a hundred years ago, by Melissa Lemke, which I commend to you. Kennedy's photograph of faith from the Fortiguary tomb is on the left. The other photograph, also good, is of the same sculpture. So here is my first point. We often say that you have to see the original. And that, of course, is the justification for lone exhibitions. 
But with sculpture, that is not enough. You have to see the original in the right, or in good, lighting. If possible, in lighting that the sculptor anticipated. And there is never only one source or sort of such lighting. Colleoni, Fortaguerri tomb, incredulity of Thomas at all San Michele are not here. Although the last mentioned has been here uh, 15 or so years ago. But amazingly, the David and the Putto with the Dolphin, two of the artist's greatest works, certainly his most loved works, and some of the most famous sculptures of the 15th century are together in this exhibition, which is, I may say, of a perfect size. Next to the boy with a dolphin is the National Gallery of Arts um, own boy without anything. I should mention that the boy with a dolphin is made be completely in the round. Uh, I don't quite agree that it's a figura serpentinata, which, was a, uh, uh, which is a claim made by Andrew Butterfield, but he's quite right to emphasize the extraordinary number of beautiful views that you can get of this work as you move around it. Those of you who have uh, seen the little Bertoldo exhibition in the Frick in New York at the moment will perhaps have admired the figure of Orpheus, which I show you on the right-hand side of the screen. It's an unfinished bronze sculpture, but it similarly seems to expect you to walk round it. Head goes in one direction, the legs in another, and I think it's the right height for a fountain sculpture. It was the fact that people wanted beautifully decorated fountains that stimulated this three-dimensional aspect of sculpture. Well, when I was senior creator of sculpture in the National Gallery of Art, and before that, the Mellon Professor, I often paused in front of the, the boy, the boy without anything. Um, not the boy with a dolphin, not the boy with wings, not the boy with anything on. And I was never sure, I was never sure that it was by Verrocchio. And some friends of mine have said that the one thing that you can see from this exhibition is that it couldn't be by Verrocchio. But the first thing that I thought when I went into the exhibition is that it definitely is by Verrocchio. So although I grumble about the optimism of labels quite frequently, I do in fact um, fully agree with this one. Now this sculpture is extremely um, unusual object because it is in terra cruda, that is to say made of clay that has um, never been baked. When I, um, when I was here as a senior curator of sculpture, um, I often went round the galleries um, with the late Robert H. Smith, who was president of the gallery and a great benefactor of the gallery and a great personal uh, supporter. And he, he very frequently said to me, how good is this? Or how good is that person? 
Um, and whilst I was, he could see me framing some judicious reply, he said, I mean, is it the best in the world? <laughs> and um, as you can imagine, it required quite a lot of ingenuity to reply uh, to this uh, question. But I always used to say what he didn't actually need to hear, which was that the uh, conservation department here for objects led by Shelley Sturman was absolute world leader. And it's good to know, coming back here, that this must still be the case because there's a wonderful essay in the catalogue uh, devoted to Verrocchio's uh, technique, written by uh, Dylan Smith. And I'm not going to, uh, you must read it for yourself, but it has this wonderful X-ray in it. And you can see there this, this, um, these pieces of metal shown up as white uh, within the terra cruda and had this item of sculpture ever been baked or cooked and turned into terracotta, that, of course, would have, it would have um, burst in asunder because of the metal inside it. Very few sculptures, but perhaps more sculptures than we used to think have survived um, that are made of unbaked clay. The most sensational ones are uh, those that you can now see in the galleries of the Vatican. Huge figures um, modeled by Bernini, which has this special fascination that they're falling to pieces so that you can see all the uh, rubbish inside them underneath the outer lay uh, clay. They're incredibly moving as well as very fascinating objects. But the putto has not fallen, um, not crumbled, and not broken up in any way at all. So it's a quite miraculous survival. And it's very, very uh, exciting to see it uh, next to the world-famous, the far more famous and beautiful bronze of the boy with the dolphin. It, to me, it's immediately obvious that the differences are, and this is very rare for this to be clear in Verrocchio's case, it's very clear that one is an early work and the other one a later work, and that the boy with the dolphin comes first. And I agree here with Alison Lux and with other of my former colleagues in their uh, dating of this work. So there's also, you can see that actually it does have more motion. It, um, it moves more. Um, on that uh, globe, over the top of that globe to which it's fixed, than does the little bronze. It's more of a running figure, and in particular, the back heel is raised from the globe. The version of the child from the Bargello, which is on the screen now. And to me, it's immediately obvious that this Christ child, this little boy, in any case, is uh, a brother, a twin of... Uh, the boy without anything, um, blowing bubbles or whatever it is that he's, or a little rattle or windmill that he seems designed to have in his raised right hand. So in the middle there, you see the child, the Christ child from the virgin child group from the Bargello. And to right and left, you have Washington's Verrocchio boy without anything. And he seems to be just relaxing after his uh, energetic activity in the center there. Seeing the boy without anything next to the uh, putto with a dolphin also made me wonder whether, at one stage at least, the boy with a dolphin 
didn't have wings. Um, it's such an obvious uh, observation to make in a way, because obviously you model a child before you put wings on him. But what I really mean here is, actually, did Verrocchio add these wings at the very last moment to this sculpture? And if you go round the back of the sculpture, you'll see that the wing that joins onto his bare shoulder is a little thought seems to have been given to them to the transitional point where other sculptors produce little teeny uh, feathers and tried to make it look as if it really had grown there. And more particularly, there seems to have been no attempt to show a kind of opening in this rather leathery garment fluttering behind uh, the, the putto for the wing to come through. Admittedly, the whole idea is a problem. Um, how you get the child's clothes off is difficult enough. Um, the wriggling that they get up to is always a, an impediment to easy uh, removal. But if they have wings as well, it must be difficult. But at least you would expect, at least you would expect the sculptor, I think, to have thought of, of that a little bit more. Um, so at this point, many uh, lecturers would uh, have a computerized image showing the putto with a dolphin without the wings, and perhaps actually even without the dolphin, but I'm not going to go there. I leave the idea with you and with this image, which you can go and check up for yourselves later on. So one result of this exhibition is that I think, personally, that uh, you've got another Verrocchio for sure in the National Gallery of Art, and I wish I could say that I have absolutely no doubt at all that the National Gallery in London has a couple of the finest paintings by Verrocchio. But Tobias and the Angel, which you see on the left of the screen here, Tobias and the Angel, uh, which was in this exhibition and has left, um, I think to go to the Louvre, this painting must be a fairly early work, associated certainly with Verrocchio. And if it's a fairly early work, then we have to think of it together with the boy with the dolphin and together with the David. And I have very great difficulty this uh, in doing so. Uh, it's not just that it has a very naive landscape, but the representation of, the mo of movement in this painting is far less sophisticated than what we see in the sculpture. Now, Vasari, who is our, the main source, as usual, for our knowledge of Vasari, of, um, of Rocchio, for so many other artists, he does clearly say that Verrocchio came to painting late in his life. Um, it's also quite clear that Verrocchio did not have the ordinary sort of, whatever that may mean, at least the conventional type of Renaissance studio or workshop. He'd never, there is no documented work in fresco by him. Had there been, I think he would certainly have had to have a differently organized studio. But instead, he seems to have been had as associates very brilliant young artists, and most of those we know about were actually painters, perhaps because that wasn't something he himself did. 
This painting is one which has the most beautiful details. The head of Tobias is quite outstandingly lovely and beautifully painted. The fish uh, is a miracle of painting, and not least because it clearly is not only made from a drawing, but can only have been made from the life, or from a dead, anyway, fish, because of the observation of reflected light on the scales. And the dog trotting along, that is a remarkable observation of an animal in movement. These parts of the picture have often been distinguished by people writing about it, including um, David Brown, who um, was a colleague of mine, only recently retired from the National Gallery, in his book on the young Leonardo. So what a strange thing. We have here a painting with very beautiful parts in it, well-painted altogether, pretty perfunctory painted landscape, but with some parts of it which seem to have been the interventions of much greater artists, not in my view necessarily Leonardo, but not implausibly Leonardo. And what is a part of this picture, apart from the general composition and the representation of movement, which makes it, to my mind, impossible as a work which we can really call by Verrocchio? It would above all be the hands, which has often been observed. There are, of course, four hands in the painting, but actually there are really only two. Um, they are... Uh, the, both hands of Tobias are identically arranged. And those also of uh, the angel Raphael, although one of them has been reversed, so you're not so immediately, um, it's not so immediately obvious. And in the case of Tobias's hands, what you have, and you see them, are one of them repeated also in the contemporary, I believe, painting of the Virgin and Child in Berlin, so-called Sully Madonna, you see another example of this hand, and it's a hand that can be used for almost everything, but isn't actually plausible for anything that it is in fact used for, um, such as holding a scroll, holding a bit of drapery, or whatever. It, it, it looks okay, but it is a, must have been a studio prop. Whether the, whether the artists are uh, following a drawing, or even a sculptural model, is an interesting question. But it is not uh, to be compared with the exquisite hands of the lady with flowers, the most beautiful uh, marble uh, carving surviving by Verrocchio, which is in the exhibition. Her hands, of course, are on the catalogue. And there she is on the left of the screen. She may, you may say she's later in date. You got better at doing hands. But then there's the hand of the David. And to my mind, it is not fair to Verrocchio to suggest that he painted the picture of Tobias and the angel in the National Gallery. What I think happened was that artists working with him uh, made the painting, and there was more than one artist, and some parts he may even have encouraged intervention. He may even have intervened himself to make some parts more remarkable. Vasari also says quite straightforwardly that Verrocchio was interested in architecture and was a master of perspective. And it seems to me that if there is one surviving painting, uh, one surviving painting uh, 
by him. It is uh, this marvelous picture known as the Ruskin Madonna, uh, which is now in the National Gallery of Scotland and currently in this exhibition. A little diagram next to this painting in the exhibition shows you the extreme care with which the perspective has been planned, the linear perspective. It's actually more complicated even than that diagram demonstrates, because that diagram concentrates on the uh, orthogonals. There are also diagonals in this paving. And you can see picked out in light, the white, of course, being the part that is preserved in this very damaged picture, all the tiny little details um, on the left-hand side as the paving races towards the most exquisite uh, exercise in aerial perspective to be seen in this exhibition. This seems to me to be, uh, most people now say this is by Ghirlandaio. Domenico Ghirlandaio, one of the brilliant young artists who is certainly associated with, uh, with Verrocchio. But there's nothing in, nothing in Ghirlandaio's later work which suggests either this refinement or this elaboration of linear and aerial perspective. Not only that, but here, the whole composition is masterly. This is not, this exercise in linear perspective is made to be part of the whole composition. Uh, you only have to consider the way that the Virgin's head and hands are contained within the rectangle of the closed portion of the architecture, all the way at the receding lines of the paving or of the entablature of this building relate to the slope of her shoulder, the, the line of her arm, and the, even uh, the tilting of her head. Also, it doesn't look like a painting in which more than one artist has been at work, which has certainly not stopped art historians from speculating um, as to who did what within it. The other painting associated with Verrocchio in the National Gallery in London is generally now regarded as the best preserved and the most remarkable of all his paintings. And in fact, the paintings curator responsible for the exhibition in Florence devoted to Verrocchio earlier this year described it to my amazement as its former curator as one of the five greatest paintings, I'm sure they meant five greatest Italian paintings, of the 15th century. Well, if that claim had been made for the lily, or for the hair, or for the hand, or for the eyes, or even for the drapery, I would have, or, or certainly for um, portions of the um, magnificently painted luxury textiles of the sleeve and the lining of the drapery, any claim made for any of these things, uh, I would fully support, but the painting as a whole is um, extremely confused and confusing and um, always looks as if it was put together out of separate exquisite parts, even parts which were designed separately. So you can imagine a beautiful drawing for an angel with a lily, which would normally actually be a study for uh, the angel Gabriel. 
You can imagine how fine that would be, and it is, in fact, painted with the same exquisite care. But it is not well-related, collides with the child's feet. It's very, very ambiguous spatially. And the other uh, angel on the right of the picture appears to be slightly falling out of it, often now, and I think quite plausibly attributed to Perugino, another very great artist whose beginnings were with Verrocchio. All of these, all of these are very fine, but they are not very well put together, or not by the standards of painting we've just been looking at, or of so many other paintings of its period even. Admittedly, it's quite a complicated, quite an ambitious composition. And although Leonardo, I believe, might well have been partially responsible for this work, although I don't feel certain about that at all, I think that this work really did teach Leonardo something very, very important, which was that he would invest far more in the preliminary compositional stage of his paintings than uh, his master, Verrocchio, um, was inclined to do or to allow, because I think this is really just a product of the competing brilliant students of this great artist. There are paintings in the National Gallery in London which are, should serve as warnings to those of us who uh, engage in this game of trying to calculate who did what part of a picture of that kind. One of them is the early masterpiece of Raphael, the Mond Crucifixion, now on the screen. Because Vasari quite rightly observes of this picture that if it were not known to be by Raphael, everyone would think it was by Perugino. There really is very little except its exquisite qualities of design to separate it from Raphael's master, who was himself, in turn, um, the pupil of Verrocchio. But the activity of finding other artists in the other hands in paintings is not uh, an entirely new game played by professional art historians and connoisseurs. The first account that we have of this little picture by Antonello da Messina contains the information that some experts thought that the saint's head was by another artist. So people were actually looking for that kind of thing I think in this case quite wrongly, even in the 15th or early 16th century. And we know from Vasari himself, we have from him the story that Verrocchio gave up painting because the angel, the angel that you see on the left, near profile, painted by Leonardo in Verrocchio's great painting of the baptism, was so good that he, Verrocchio, said that he, that's enough. He'd had enough of, of painting when he saw it. And of course, uh, it's very touching that uh, Verrocchio's own angel seems to be looking um, a little resentfully at, uh, at the almost um, uncomfortably angelic character of uh, Leonardo's invention. Uh, beside him. 
if you had to adopt one or the other, I think it, I would go for um, the less spiritual of the two, um, whatever the pictorial merit uh, might decide. Now, the idea actually of allowing your best pupil to do um, one of a pair of angels is, is quite often, I think, found, as also with uh, elaborate uh, pilasters. Uh, an artist, quite much, it would be a natural thing for an artist to do the angel on one side of an altarpiece, or on, in sculpture, on one side of an altar, or an elaborate pilaster on one side of a doorway, um, and to give the other, the other pilaster or the other angel to your uh, star pupil. Um, I think something of the kind has always been uh, suspected or believed to be the case in the famous pair of angels in terracotta in the Louvre, which is included in this exhibition. They are close enough in style and character for us to be very happy to, see, to think of them as a pair. But when you get closer to them and look into them, the, um, and lose yourself in their elaborate drapery, uh, you immediately begin to suspect a different artistic hand, and it, it, it not just an executive hand, modeling, but the invention is by someone else. The, the characters of the faces are different enough, but I would urge you to concentrate on the drapery of the figure of the angel on the right, of which I now show you a detail. When you go to the exhibition, just try and follow that ribbon that emerges somewhere around the waist, flutters over the complicated drapery um, of the skirt, dips down, comes back, loops over another such fluttering ribbon, and then makes its serpentine route up through the wing, and then you can just see it terminating, or nearly terminating, a very, very, very long ribbon indeed, above the wing of, uh, um, above the, uh, the angel's left-hand wing, on the very top right-hand corner of uh, this um, image. Such a ribbon would be extremely dangerous were angels ever to walk, but of course, if they fly, that's absolutely fine. But it's not just the ribbon. On the way, you'll have seen how, um, how almost, uh, um, almost indecipherable, actually, spatially, some of this drapery is because of its extreme complexity. That, I think, is not Verrocchio, but no one's come up with a plausible idea as to the other sculptor involved in that pairing. Now, the exhibition offers opportunities for comparison, some of which I've mentioned already. One of the most interesting, and certainly one of the most interesting for you, because you must um, always be looking out for the exact status of all the great works of art in the National Gallery of Art itself. So one of the important things for you must certainly be how does Washington's virgin child compare with these other paintings? And the answer, I think, is extremely interesting because it is so close to the great but very damaged painting uh, now in the National Gallery of Scotland, the Ruskin Madonna, 
of which I've spoken already in the highest terms. And you can see the general similarity from these two pictures. And then you can see the comparison. Actually, this is a comparative um, single image from a catalog. Uh, the chief difference, of course, will be the gold background, which appears to be original, therefore, I think wouldn't have been chosen by Verrocchio, but may have been chosen by a patron. The second difference is, of course, one of condition. The Washington picture is in very, very much better condition than the one in the National Gallery of Art, which is now on the left-hand side of your screen. And I always thought that this was really a comparison which shouldn't be made because it was difficult to distinguish whether you were talking about the drawing underneath or the painting on top because of all the, the exact curvature of the lips or the exact uh, character of the eyelids. These minute particulars were actually likely to be reproduced perfectly from an underlying drawing. So did they tell you necessarily about the painter in question? And I thought that also the, there was a greater translucency to the uh, veil worn in, by the Ruskin Madonna, the one on the left, the one in Scotland. But I, I think this is really just a question of condition. There is a greater interest in, in translucency. You can see it um, where the veil falls over the, um, uh, the cloak and tunic of the, of the Virgin. But as for her head, I think this is a difference entirely to do with the very much greater worn and damaged condition of uh, the painting in Edinburgh. It's one of those paintings which, where the damage almost makes it some, in some passages more beautiful than, uh, rather than less. So it seems a terrible thing to say, but um, may even, I think, in some places be true. It's a, it's, a, it's a picture which, in the 19th century, was very well known to the first director of the National Gallery when it was in a collection in Venice. And he always just dismissed it as completely uh, repainted and, and, and destroyed. So it really is, was recovered entirely by um, the Fairfax Murray, the artist dealer and art historian who bought the picture for Ruskin and restored it for him. And what I think uh, clinches it for me is the similarity in the uh, infant Christ. He has a more metallic hair style in the, um, in the Washington picture, but that again is something that I think is entirely due to condition. But the modeling, especially the light on this merry rotund face is, um, you can tell that the Washington one wants to suck his fingers, but hasn't got around to it. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's surely the same child and painted by the same person in two different conditions. So there again, I think uh, National Gallery of Art can consider that it has a painting by Verrocchio. It's not as ambitious a picture at all. In many ways, it's opposite in its character to the Ruskin Madonna, since it doesn't have a background. But in every other respect, I think it is a masterpiece by Verrocchio himself. Now, in what remains of this lecture, and I'm sorry to tell you quite a lot does remain, um, I want to uh, concentrate on two things which 
make Verrocchio um, one of the most important of uh, European artists. I didn't just say, just as beautiful, not just a creator of beautiful things, but a creator of things which had a tremendous impact on the art in the centuries that followed. So first of all, I think he probably is the first artist who consistently advocated the practice of drawing figures from, the, uh, on, from nude models. Now this uh, is what Alberti had recommended, but the first artist who seems off to have encouraged it consistently seems to me to probably have been Verrocchio. There is a drawing, there's his David in the middle, and there's a drawing from a model in the same pose as this David by his pupil, Lorenzo di Credi. And there is one on the other side, is one of the amazing, one of the two amazing drawings from life, definitely from life, from living models, nude models, which is in this exhibition. Slightly controversial um, uh, attribution, but um, made very persuasively in the catalogue by Lorenzo Meili. And for me, this was one of the most revealing aspects of the exhibition. This practice of uh, drawing from the model in poses which, for figures which will later be clothed is, of course, one that's taken up by Raphael. I'm showing you now the drawings for foreground figures in his transfiguration and the completed painting on the other side. It becomes standard slowly with artists in the 16th century. Barocci, who came from the same city as Raphael, consistently um, uses models, even male models, more often male models than female models, for drape figures. There's one on the left, and then there's the complete painting in the National Gallery of the Holy Family with the goldfinch. Um, and I'll just pop back so you can see it's the same figure. And this becomes, gradually becomes, in the 17th and 18th century, standard practice for the academies established all over Europe right into the 20th century, right to today. Except that in the last 100 years, these nude studies have not been made preparatory for paintings of draped figures. Perhaps even more remarkable are the um, models made by Verrocchio, and here is the most beautiful of all of them. Uh, the um, sleeping figure, sometimes identified as Adam, sometimes as Endymion from Berlin, with his wonderful curly hair. A sleeping figure, it's a sleeping hand to my mind, and certainly a sleeping face with closed eyes, but with uh, a remarkably clenched um, anatomy, which is implausible in someone asleep. Because I think this figure probably was what would later be called an academy. In other words, something uh, which other are made for other artists to study, um, rather than for any, uh, um, uh, rather than to be a, a beautiful thing, a beautiful representation of Endymion or whoever. But that is always uncertain. It's 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 true, I think, probably, of this figure as well, um, which also has uh, seems to be uh, some a study of anatomy as well as of a, a figure in movement. Um, so, in other words, uh, this becomes something that sculptors do um, a great deal. Uh, some of the 
best examples from the 19th century are the, um, the models, the modeled, mod models made in clay from, obviously from uh, living nude models made by uh, the sculptor uh, Dalu, which were then later turned into bronze. But so many of these figures, of course, must have been lost. Which brings me back to um, the Washington uh, flying or running boy with, um, with nothing else. Um, because uh, actually, this must be in some respects uh, a model made from life, but you can't get a child to keep still, uh, at least of all when one of their feet um, is in the air and one of their arms are raised. But actually, in, in any way at all, it's impossible to uh, persuade a child to keep any sort of pose at this sort of age. This, is, of course, makes a model of this kind an immensely valuable thing for uh, other artists. And that, I think, is probably why um, it, it was so carefully looked after and has so miraculously survived. Um, there must, of course, have been something quite similar made before the bronze boy with a dolphin was actually cast. Um, and then he was given the dolphin to play with, and then he was, had wings added. But before the wings were added, he had some drapery given to him. And the next um, short part of my lecture is devoted to the even more important and influential uh, aspect of Rocchio's art. And that is his work as a sculptor of drapery. And in a way, his greatest innovation was that he didn't do it. Because no one could have invented the folds that you see on the cloth or the flying drapery behind the puteau with the dolphin. It's nature that does it. You have to, um, it looks, and I'm sure it was, cloth that had fallen into that position and that the artist had then selected, maybe played with a little bit, and then somehow imitated. People have sometimes thought that this was so naturalistic that actually it must have been cast from uh, cloth. Uh, and that is not a ridiculous idea, because we do know that Donatello experimented with precisely that way of doing things. But actually, the process that seems much more likely is the one which is described by Vasarian in other sources, whereby drapery was soaked in slip, in very, very um, watery clay, or sometimes in gesso, in, in watery plaster, thrown till it fell in the right and most attractive way, and then solidified. Very, very useful in the studio because uh, you, you, know, you can keep it over over weeks and weeks, and it'll still be in the same uh, form. And it can have a most attractive plasticity, as well as a remarkably naturalistic character. Well, this is a discovery of, of Rocchio's. You see it very frequently in his work. You see, it, you see it around the arm of the Bargello Virgin and Child. And not, 
it's not the case, as we are so often think of with drapery, that you can see the arm underneath or that the underlying form has, has uh, uh, altered this drapery. It has done so, but only to a very small degree. And this drapery was done separately. Why was it done separately? It was done separately. This is the unexpected or unanticipated, I suppose, originally, and um, byproduct of the Albertian idea of making nude figures first. If you make the nude figure first for a figure that's going to be draped, you then make the drapery separately. And it encourages a division between these two things. Of course, there's always going to be drapery, which is like clothing, which follows the forms of the body, which is affected by it. But there will also be many passages which do not, which have their own life. And this was something that Verrocchio introduced. Now, uh, it's uh, well known to all of you that artists will do the model nude or do the, uh, the model wearing her normal um, studio clothes, and then he'll or she will create a more ample, often very ample, um, uh, drapery around them, as you see Raphael doing in this, these designs for Madonna and Francois Premier, which you see on the right. But right at the end of the 19th century, the great English painter, uh, Frederick Leighton, he, he, he drew a nude, then he modeled a nude, and then he threw over the nude um, endless different arrangements of drapery, um, which he then drew and which he then painted in this uh, once famous work. And then Dugar in the 1860s, there's a nude adolescent on the left, and there's beautiful drapery study for her on the right. And there you see the final figure, which he actually doesn't use that drapery study, or at least only partially for. Uh, these, um, this is the most important missing dimension from the beautiful exhibition here, because so many of these drawings, drawings from, of drapery studies, are um, now included in another exhibition devoted to Leonardo, because more of the great examples are attributed to, to Leonardo than to Verrocchio. But there is absolutely no doubt that it was Verrocchio who introduced uh, this practice into the studio. Lay figures, or even just a chair, and you arrange drapery over it, and you study the drapery separately. Here are two beautiful examples by Leonardo, and the one on the left is on pink prepared paper, which makes it very, very enticing. But the other one, and the number of uh, other drawings of fine textiles of this kind are actually painted on fine textile, um, on a very, very fine linen. And here are two examples. The one on the left is certainly one by Leonardo. But the one on the right, slightly less condition, different condition, but um, less good condition, but um, of similar quality, is certainly one by Verrocchio and one which is associated with his studies preparatory for the incredulity of Thomas. Other artists really quickly picked up this type of drawing. Filippino Lippi on the left, Raphael on the right. I characterize these drawings by ones in which the figure itself is obviously added or is, or is just a ghost. That's perhaps not the case with the Filippino Lippi, but it is the case with the Raphael, and of course it's the case with these works as well. 
um, throughout the following centuries, you have this type of study is an absolutely standard part of the, uh, the artist's uh, training um, and the artist's practice, the practice of mature artists. Carlo Maratta in the, probably the 1670s on the left, Overbeck in the 1820s on the right, and I've already given you examples by much later artists, uh, by Degas, for example. Um, but what is really interesting about this, in a way, um, as a totally unexpected consequence of Rocchio's practice, is that the drapery studies, because they're made separately, and because they don't just consist of drapery, which is um, tightly arranged around the human form, because they have their own life and their own identity as a, as a study in art, they can actually uh, start spreading out all over the entire painting or indeed beyond a sculptured figure, as in these painting by Domenichino and a sculpture by uh, Bernini, um, which you see, which are, of course, entirely characteristic of the Italian Baroque. But this way of thinking about drapery um, begins, I think, with the separate drapery studies of Verrocchio. And what works of art, if any, in this exhibition do these drapery studies affect? Well, first of all, we can return again to the uh, Edinburgh Ruskin Madonna, the virgin child, with the amazing architectural background, with the amazing linear and aerial perspective. Because that drapery impresses one immediately as drapery made from a study of this kind. And opposite it, I'm putting you um, a drawing by Leonardo. Uh, where indeed the folds are actually more angular um, than the rounded ones that you see in the painting. But it has this same remarkable effect of plasticity. Indeed, a sculptural quality inserted into the painting. And this is, although these are a sort of painting, these drapery studies, they are the sort of study that uh, I think originates with uh, sculptors. I think sculpture has, as generally in Verrocchio's uh, practice, a priority um, uh, in, in, in this regard. Uh, and that's because actually this idea of stiffening drapery was probably a very old one uh, for sculptors. You see many examples of um, a crucified Christ where the loincloth is made in precisely this way. Um, and it is to create, after all, a three-dimensional object. So anyway, here it is. But in Florence, where many of these drawings were exhibited in a single room, they were shown around a beautiful um, terracotta virgin and child, in the, normally in the Victoria and Albert Museum. And you see how, uh, with my photograph, emphasizing the, the dark shadows, much better actually than the photograph you'll see in the Florentine catalog, you can see how close this small terracotta imitates the, uh, the type of um, the character that you see in this Leonardo drawing on the right. And so I, I completely understand why uh, Cagliotti, Francesco Cagliotti, um, the great um, Italian scholar of Renaissance um, sculpture, 
has uh, attributed or has returned to the att old attribution that the Victorian Albert Museum's exquisite virgin child once had and attributes it to Leonardo himself. Not, of course, only on the grounds of its remarkable sculptural drapery folds, but also because of the representation of the laughing child and of the smiling virgin. Both ideas important for Verrocchio, but here seem to be taken that much further, the chuckling of the child and the more sublime, benign, uh, smiling virgin. It's a curious sculpture. It must have been made as a model for some much larger work where it was very important that the virgin child didn't project too far because when seen from the side, you see it's, it's deliberately compressed. So it's really a sort of high relief. In that respect also, Verrocchian. Verrocchio was the great enemy of low relief. Of course, it returns to uh, some of the, and the whole of this question of drapery character seems to go back uh, to Masaccio. And you could say, surely Masaccio in some way starched or stiffened the drapery that he used for his figures so much earlier. I don't know. Lastly, I want to talk very briefly about Verrocchio. Uh, the, the other aspect of Verrocchio, which I consider to be, to have a huge influence, and that is Verrocchio, um, and here is his smiling Madonna with some very um, substantial drapery right behind her. Uh, Verrocchio and the representation of the passions and of emotion in the face. Now, clearly this was a feature of, of Giotto's art, as you can see, developed further by Mantegna, as in this detail from his crucifixion. But it is a very, very important aspect of Verrocchio's achievement. So you may be so beguiled by his David that you don't give much attention to poor Goliath. But really, this is one of the great things in the exhibition is to be able to get very close to this uh, tragic head with its terrible forehead wound. And it's the expression of this face, I think, could only have been done by someone who is studying their own face in a mirror, as becomes uh, a very important practice for painters over the following centuries. And it's the first face I know of in European art of which that must certainly have been the case. Uh, there may be uh, other examples. Some of these faces by Verrocchio showing extreme forms of expression are, of course, part of the ornamental accessories of his work. And in this respect, they may come from Desiderio, whose um, relief of Scipio you see on the left of this screen. Um, and you see such a mask uh, with wings, um, of course, on uh, one of the National Gallery of Art's great masterpieces by Verrocchio here uh, on the chest. And in the exhibition, you can see how separate studies of this kind used as ornaments in Rome um, can compare with these, these extremely expressive heads. And in Verrocchio, in Verrocchio's example, the hair, <coughs> as in some extremely expressive antique faces, 
seems to be um, bursting out of the, um, of the expressive features of the face and complementing the emotion that they represent. What this leads to is obvious in Leonardo and then in Bernini and then in other sculptors, <laughs> perhaps less well known to you, in Moser or Carpo, as in these examples. The best uh, work of art for studying this is Verrocchio's silver relief, which you will have to go to Florence to see. But in the catalogue, a most astonishing um, photograph taken by Antonio Quattroni of just one detail of that silver relief by Verrocchio shows you um, how amazing these representations of uh, the transient uh, emotions and passions of the human uh, face can be. And I'm putting it here opposite that face study uh, in painting, a separate study of a head uh, of St. Jerome uh, by Verrocchio to emphasize this extraordinary um, ability that he developed. One which was immediately taken up by other artists this, in the exhibition in Florence, there was uh, uh, this painting by Bartolomeo della Gatta, and you can see how all of the apostles appear to be um, losing their mind almost. Uh, so extreme are the expressions on their faces. And that reminds you of how actually how difficult it is to get this right. Um, it's taken up by the Della Robbia in, uh, in, in their relief sculpture. And again, they can't quite do it. But the person, of course, who could was Leonardo, and who did was Raphael, and Anibale Caracci. This painting, known as the Four Marys, was, for two centuries, one of the most admired paintings in Europe, primarily because of the representation of extreme emotions and a variety of such emotions in these heads. It was associated very much with the great French artist Lebrun, and then instituted in the French Academy, where the tête d'expression was um, a separate competition for artists. But with Verrocchio, it is not just the representation of emotion. It is that combined with perfect forms of perfect beauty, which everyone at the time found exemplified by his representation of Christ. And I'll show you again um, Clarence Kennedy photograph this case in this case of Christ um, uh, in marble and and I show you the extremely fine bust which is in this exhibition um, which uh, helps one to understand why he had this uh, repu uh, reputation uh, but of course for us perhaps more remarkable are the types of ideal and beautiful boy that he created, both in the David and in the, in the uh, sleeping terracotta, which I've turned uh, on its side um, to make this point. And ex the extraordinary thing in this exhibition is that you can actually see this process of inventing a type of ideal beauty. You can actually see this happening on paper on two sides of the divine drawing from the British Museum one side of which you see um, a face uh, surely drawn just from life with very rapid indication of the hand pillowing the cheek. And on the other side, a face moved um, with a whole new set of uh, type of lighting created for it 
in sfumato and with the ideal embellishment um, of the hair. So you can see how this move towards ideal types um, actually um, uh, arises uh, in an artist's work. And lastly, and for me, one of the great rev uh, revelations of the exhibition were the, semi -caricat the caricatural drawings, which are the other side of the, this drive towards ideal beauty, and which is, of course, often said to be an invention of Rocchio's pupil, Leonardo. Um, but it was not. These, I think, really, I am convinced by the catalogue, actually. Um, there's, it's still a little bit controversial as to whether or not these are by Verrocchio, but they are from his period. I think they are by, by Verrocchio. And the amazing thing is that we know these dreadful people. Um, uh, we all know someone who looks a little like one or the other of them. And at this time of year, they may even be behaving in the way at the office party or whatever, in the way that you will see in the entire drawing sheet. But um, forget that and enjoy them in the exhibition. Thank you very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.